0: You're listening to Conversations, the official podcast of the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies, recorded at the Center in Garmisch, Germany. Welcome to Marshall Center's Perspectives. Marshall Center's Perspectives shares interviews with key decision makers and newsmakers who are here to support one of our many programs. The Baltic region of Europe was the focus of a tailored seminar for parliamentarians held at the Marshall Center January 19th and 20th, 2017. Newly elected parliamentarians from Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia spent three days discussing national security topics with some very influential people. One of those speakers was Dr. Ian Pascu, vice president of the European Parliament. Dr. Pascu is a frequent visitor to the Marshall Center. He is a Romanian politician and is a former minister of defense. With nearly a decade of service in the European Parliament, he has certainly seen many changes and developments. Dr. Valbona Zanelli, Program Director for Black Sea and Eurasia, sat down with Dr. Pascu to ask him about European security in this region. Here is that interview between Dr. Zanelli and Dr. Pascu, recorded on d- January 20th.
1: So my first question for you is, so the strategic environment in Europe is clearly being shaped and defined by new geopolitical developments and we're starting with the financial and economic crisis with the brexit vote migration crisis uh the threat of terrorism in europe the rise of nationalism and populism in europe the challenges in ukraine and the annexation of crimea so among all those challenges what is that keeps you awake at night what are the most pressing challenges
2: well, you know, the fact that they are all emotional, highly emotional. And uh, when you stir up emotions, especially with the population, then it's very difficult to keep your head cool and uh, get, you know, the right decisions in the right time. So I believe, you know, that this is actually um, the problem which is um, to, be, to be dealt with. But other than that, I consider that the financial and economic crisis has been uh, a game changer in the sense that the European Union became inward-looking and therefore we started to neglect what was happening around us and all of a sudden we discovered that we are encircled by conflicts which start to spill over in through the uh, refugee crisis and also through terrorism, uh, which has transformed the perception of the European citizens. Defense, for instance, and security, which has never been at the top of the agenda, has become at a major topic now and uh, the european leaders are trying to respond to it so uh, i would say you know that there is not one mm-hmm. but all of them you know uh, keep us uh, awake all at combine night combined together bring those, those yes. challenges those
1: yes. threats. so you are here this morning to speak to a group of parliamentarians from the baltics what do you assess to be the top tier challenges for this region and what could be done should be done to address those challenges <coughs>
2: well if we take uh, the declarations and actions coming from moscow we see that there is an attempt uh, on the part of the current administration in moscow to uh, somehow restore the status of uh, russia to the levels of the soviet union and uh, from that point of view certainly the countries which have been part of the soviet union um, are in a very sensitive position. But at the same time, let's not forget that uh, Baltic countries are part of NATO and the EU and therefore, you know, they have uh, the full protection of those institutions.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, two resolutions were voted by the European Parliament last October on how the European Union should tackle the deteriorating security environment that we see in Europe. And among... Th- some of the ideas, uh, the first one was establishing an European Union operational headquarters to plan, command, and manage uh, crisis. And the second one was setting a defense budget of 2% of the GDP, which we have heard for a long time recently. So how much do you think these plans are implementable in the framework of the European Union?
2: Well, you know, uh, uh, in the European Parliament we are asking for such a headquarter only that uh, when the leaders of the countries are meeting uh, the idea has never, has not been accepted by all and therefore uh, the the word of the moment is that we should make best use of the network of headquarters we have right now uh, before we think uh, moving uh, to uh, one integrating headquarters. So uh, 2%, it's uh, certainly an engagement which has been uh, validated in Wales and it's being uh, accomplished now by the NATO countries. 21 uh, countries from the European Union are also members of NATO and therefore uh, practically we can say that uh, that engagement is also valid for the countries in the European Union. Although there are some reservations when you want to say 2% for the European Union in this mm-hmm. respect. But the documents are mentioning the figure and I am sure the countries will, uh, will do
1: it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned NATO. What do you think about the future of NATO as the main security provider for Europe?
2: It's a good question because uh, right now we would like to see what is the concept of a NATO, of the new administration. Um, I heard, you know, that the president-elect uh, is uh, speaking about... Uh, the obsolescence of uh, NATO. But here, you know, we do not know whether uh, being obsolete means that we have to better it or uh, it means that we have to scrap it Mm -hmm. altogether. So we are still waiting for indications in this respect. My personal belief is, you know, that NATO will continue to be the same successful alliance as it used to be up until now Mm -hmm. and provide the security, all countries, wanted to, to have when they practically uh, fought to get into NATO. I wrote a book on Romania's way towards NATO, which is called The Battle for NATO, mm-hmm. because it was a battle.
1: Of course. Uh, going back to defense budgeting, uh, as it is right now, 70% of the defense budget of NATO is covered States. by the United States. And also considering Brexit, then will be that 80% of the defense budget will be covered by non-EU members how much that could be sustainable in the long run?
2: Well, I would say, you know, that uh, without doubt, uh, the European countries' uh, members would have to increase their uh, defence spending and they have to really reach the 2%, which is the engagement taken in Wales. I believe that there is no other way around. Uh, But at the same time, let's not forget that Senator Mansfield in the 60s was raising the same question not that i'm saying you know that the question has not been sorted out in the meantime because it wasn't the united states like then today is paying uh, the majority of the expenses of the EU, of the, of nato but at the same time you know uh, you have to think you know that nato as uh, as an alliance is not as uh, as an enterprise with some branches which uh, can be closed down only because they are not profitable. A mm-hmm. uh, mercantilist uh, view of a NATO uh, is, is contradictory to the essence of the alliance, which means collective defence to the members. Not all the members can afford themselves to, to have the entire array of instruments at their disposal. If they, if they ha- could, mm-hmm then they wouldn't probably ask uh, to get into NATO. So we have to really bridge in between these two views in order to to have an effective uh, NATO. But mm-hmm. 2% is indispensable.
1: Which is important for showing political will because the 2% of plus, some countries... Plus it's
2: real money. It's plus it's real money. Mm-hmm. In the European Union now, there is a tendency that the European Commission would start to uh, fund uh, some... Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, defence related projects civilian defence related projects Uh, so we are moving in that direction in which you know defence is not funded only by national means but also by uh, Mm -hmm. community means.
1: So maybe it could be a wake up call for the European... It will be a wake up call
2: and it is certainly advantageous for the countries which are not so uh, rich uh, which otherwise you know uh, would be very reluctant to invest the scarce scarce resources they have uh, into defense although defense as i said you know becomes a major concern of the european citizens
1: thank you we'll move to another region to the black sea you were the rapporteur of the european union on security challenges in the black sea region that we was yes strategic military situation in the black sea uh, following the illegal annexation of crimea and this was further than adopted from the european parliament and became a resolution So how important do you think is the Black Sea Basin for uh, the European security?
2: It is very important uh, because, you know, after uh, almost 150 years of neglect since the Crimean War, which was in the middle of the 19th century, Black Sea has been a uh, forgotten part of Europe where uh, nothing happened. Uh, It was more or less, you know, a uh, Soviet lake. Uh, then shared with Turkey, uh, and nothing happened. Everything started to change when uh, important deposits of energy have been found within the basin, and also when you know the consumers in the West started to import the resources coming from uh, Central Asia, from the Caucasus. And therefore, the Black Sea has become then really important. And now, probably inevitable, it's inevitable that it got also a political, military relevance. And uh, what has happened uh, with respect to Georgia in 2008 and with Crimea uh, in uh, 2014, uh, it's evident that this is the case. Mm
1: -hmm. We see in Europe a rise of nationalism. Uh, The generation of leaders such as Helmut Kohl or François Mitterrand, they really believed in a strong European Union. It looks like nowadays there is a new generation of leaders across Europe. They are trying to protect their countries from Europe. Do you think this trend will continue? What we are going to see in the future? What the future of the European Union will look like?
2: Well, you know, in history there are moments, and I'm speaking about individual countries, there are moments. Uh, which present themselves you know, only once for a long uh, number of years. Um, you have to have the generation which is aware and which has the courage to act and take advantage of that opportunity which is presenting itself. For instance, the Romanian generation uh, at the time of 1877-78, uh, when Romania got independence from uh, the Turkish Empire, or uh, in 1918, after the First World War, when Romania got reunited with the other territories. So these are achievements Mm -hmm. which were possible because the opportunity offered was valued by a generation of leaders which were aware and courageous enough to do it. It happens sometimes, you know, that there are big events, important opportunities, and the generation of leaders is not top quality.
1: It's not ready maybe to... And then, you know, and then
2: you either really lose the opportunity, miss the opportunity. But I think, you know, that even in that case, uh, you have to really elevate yourself at the Mm -hmm. level of the moment. Even if you cannot do that, you have to overpass you to overcome all the uh, handicaps you have and try to raise at the level of the challenge. Uh, I think, you know, that uh, we are in such a situation because... Uh, not many people can be called today uh, leaders of the rank of uh, Helmut Kohl or Mitterrand or uh, Roosevelt or uh, others like, like them, you know. So, but, but still, these are the leaders we have and they have to really improve, mm-hmm. improve
1: themselves. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need more leaders and followers no, of need. the public opinion. Yeah,
2: it's true, it's true, you know, some of the leaders are rather followers and uh, stay with their finger on the pulse of the people and say, ah, you want this, I can offer this, Uh, ah, you want that, I can offer that. Uh, This is not leadership, (laughs) it's exactly what you said, the followership. But but still, you know, look at what happens with defence. Defence has been, and defence budgets have been slashed continuously Uh, all these years in the European Union, and all of a sudden when defence has become a major concern of the European citizens, the leaders have reacted immediately, Mm -hmm. uh, which demonstrates that they are capable of elevating themselves at
1: the level of the expectations. And this is what people are expecting. Uh, uh, Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. Uh, One of the most significant events in 2016 was the Brexit decision of the UK. Do you think other EU nations will follow this path and how strong and resilient is the European Union without the United Kingdom?
2: Well, in a way, way, uh, certainly uh, the fact that Britain has decided to step out has been a blow to the European Union. But at the same time, it encouraged the countries to close ranks, try to see what went wrong uh, and try to uh, improve. So I would say, you know, that this is, shall we say, the positive part of a negative development. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, I would say not all countries, that uh, not all the countries in Europe, uh, members of the European Union, are <laughs> Great Britain. So uh, take Romania, for instance. If we step out, we wouldn't be able to, uh, to uh, manage ourselves as Great Britain does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly we would be in an area in which power politics is... Uh, uh, in its um, fiercest forms, manifested in its fiercest form. And it would be very difficult for us to survive in such a way. So therefore, you know, for us, uh, there is no way that we would get out of the European Union. But there are others. For instance, we will have elections soon in, uh, in Holland. Um, and Gert Wilders is uh, leading right now. Uh, we will see uh, the outcome, but uh, he is also one who is asking for a referendum. And probably there are many that should say that's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Still, even if uh, Holland has had uh, an empire, you know, world empire, and uh, were tradesmen for centuries, I don't think that they would be in the position of Britain to to be able to sustain such a separation from the European Union. That does not ensure that it would not happen. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, then, you know, uh, you will have to have a calculation, which is, which is really long time and, um, and uh, much more based on, on concrete facts rather than emotions. Uh, for instance, I had a discussion with a friend this morning, and I said uh, I knew that Britain is no quitter, mm-hmm. and he gave me the point. But and I wished, you know, that when Britain wanted to get into the European Union, they should have thought that perhaps in forty years they would be able to, they would need to get out, rather than step in and step out. Uh, But whoever, and I remember, you know, I was very young when. Uh, President de Gaulle has opposed twice Mm -hmm. at the request of Britain. I was immediately, after graduation of my faculty, when Britain has been accepted. I know what big discussions have been around uh, New Zealand butter, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, all of that, you know, to be scrapped uh, in 40 years because things have changed and Britain feels, or some, the majority of the British population feels, you know, that the EU is not offering the response they are waiting for.
1: Although on the other side, although the EU is wrapped in its own internal problems, there are still countries which are queuing up to become... European Union members, and here I have in mind the Western Balkans and the perspective that these countries have on being integrated in the EU. From the European Parliament perspective, what do you see in the future for these countries? We,
2: We continue to monitor them. There are reports which are continuously produced by the report monitoring the situation there and certainly we would like to see them integrated. And I think, you know, that eventually they will get integrated. But uh, you have to have a constant uh, uh, record of progress. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have uh, ups and downs, uh, then, you know, certainly things uh, tend to slow down. So you need, for a significant period of time, a record of progress in this respect, solid progress, in order to open the gates of the European Union. I'm sure that this will happen.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I fully agree with you. It yeah. stands for first, and it's not scapegoating the no, European no, Union no. and skepticism, raising the skepticism in the countries. It's
2: also a question, how long do I have to wait, because I live only once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's natural that the people would also put it in an individual perspective like this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we should also think, you know, that this is a generational problem, this is with cycles, this is, you know, talking of so many members, of course, and so on and so
1: forth. Uh, we'll move to another question. The transatlantic economic relation is one of the world's most enduring uh, success stories, being the largest and the most integrated force in the global economy. And as we know, since 2013, negotiations started on the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which unfortunately were not concluded uh, within 2016 as it was uh, expected. Uh, Where do you see TTIP going, since the European Parliament has an increased role also in looking at these trade negotiations?
2: Well, I would say, you know, that uh, although from the um, geostrategic point of view and uh, from the economic point of view, commercial point of view, in many respects. This is to the advantage of both sides mm-hmm. of the Atlantic. Uh, although this is so, there are also uh, many people who are against it. For various, I would say, uh, limited uh, interests, uh, some sectors of population which are not, who are not uh, feeling, you know, that this agreement is in their favor, they are opposing it. Um, There are others who oppose it on geostrategic considerations, you know. I don't think that Russia would be too happy to see this agreement being concluded. But the fact of the matter is uh, that uh, this uh, treaty is now frozen. Um, It is frozen um, not so much uh, 2016, which has been expected to be the year of conclusion, Mm, probably could not be because, for instance, Brexit has uh, has had an impact. Um, everything which us in Europe have negotiated with the Americans in financial terms has been having the uh, city of London in mind. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all our discussion has been in vain because the city is not part of the European Union. So therefore, you know, where, where have we been left? Mm-hmm. Um, To give you an example. And then, you know, the uh, new administration, which uh, is questioning the TTP in the Pacific, Mm -hmm. the fact that there China is proposing a substitute of the TTP. um, And in general, the entire perspective of uh, unraveling of the entire network of international trade agreements is not good Mm -hmm. because this is really a big challenge to the current international system.
1: Thank you. So uh, you have been an old friend of the Marshall Center. You have been here since the first, uh, a, long the, time a friend, very long time friend, friend. <laughs> <laughs> long time friend of the Marshall Center. And what do you think? What role uh, a place like the Marshall Center, which is a German-American partnership, can play in the European security?
2: Well, you know, this center has been established in June 1993, and as you know, I was part uh, at creation. I was present at creation here. And the idea, the basic idea has been, you know, because Europe was opening up at that time and um, we had to breach the cultural uh, divide which existed between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. And still today this is uh, a matter of concern. And I think, you know, that... uh, The Marshall Center is continuing to play a major role in this respect. Let's see, here, you know, we come and confront our own perceptions, my perception versus your perception. Uh, And therefore, you know, we can explain ourselves and we can find out why the other side is thinking that way and not the other way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is very helpful. Plus, plus the fact that uh, you have an array of... uh, Uh, lectures, which really open up the horizon of the participants. So I think, you know, that uh, the rationale of the Marshall Center
0: is still solid, and
2: um, I hope to be able to be invited.
0: That was an interview between Dr. Valbona Zanelli and Dr. Ian Pascu, Vice President of the European Parliament, recorded at the Marshall Center on January 20th. Dr. Pascu was a guest speaker at a tailored seminar for parliamentarians from the Baltic stakes. Join us for more security insights with interviews of our visiting guest speakers on this podcast. Thank you for listening to Conversations, the official podcast of the
2: George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. The opinions and views expressed here are not necessarily those of the Marshall Center, the Department of Defense, the German Ministry of Defense, or any other entity affiliated with the Marshall Center. More from the Marshall Center is available on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media channels and at www.marshallcenter.org. Thanks for listening.